Last week in our journey through Genesis, we came to the climax of creation, God's unique creation of humanity. Look at Genesis 1:26 again. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. We observed the singular plural interplay. God has been introduced to us as Elohim, the singular God who exists as a plurality. But the acts of God from verse 1 through verse 25 have consistently been portrayed with singular verbs. Suddenly, in verse 26, the plurality of God is emphasized. God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Then anticipating one question we must address today, we see that same singular plural interplay with humanity. God makes singular man, the Hebrew word is Adam, but immediately God decrees that they must have dominion. A singular noun, Adam, is connected with a plural verb, let them have dominion. This gets fleshed out in Moses' poetry in verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Thus, the plurality of humanity is reflected in sexual differentiation. We'll come back to the importance of this, but just observe that the blessing offered in verse 28 and the commands and addresses that follow in verses 29 to 30 are addressed to both male and female together. Thus, before the narrative of Genesis focuses attention on the personal identities of these two individuals who will later in the narrative be named Adam and Eve in chapters 2 and 3, God blesses male and female together, commands male and female together, and provides for male and female together. But we want to focus our attention primarily on addressing the question of what it means that humanity has been created in the image of God. And to get at that question, we need to ask a more fundamental question. What's an image? When Moses' original Israelite readers, wandering around in the wilderness, heard the phrase, in the image of God, what would they have understood? First, an image refers to something that's visible. The word would be used to refer to a visible replica, as in a statue or a drawing. Thus, Egyptians and Canaanites and Babylonians would manufacture statues of clay, sometimes overlaid with gold, intended to provide a visual image of the God that they worshipped. Or they might sketch a drawing on a tablet or on a wall of the God they worshipped. But the Israelites were forbidden from manufacturing such images to worship. Outside of Genesis, the only other time Moses uses this word is to refer to such pagan images in Canaan, relaying God's command to them to completely destroy all such metal images in the land. So does that mean that Yahweh, the God of Israel, should have no image? Well, his worshipers are forbidden from making an image of him to facilitate their worship, but partially that is because he has made for himself an image. Humanity is his image. Secondly, Moses' original Israelite readers would have thought of how pagan images of pagan gods were intended to function in a particular way. The statues were believed to represent 
each god's particular concerns. While the images were visible replicas, pagan people probably didn't actually believe that this statue reflected what their god looked like. Instead, the replicas were intended to represent various powers or characteristics the god was believed to have. For example, rather famously, Greek goddess Artemis was often depicted in statues and drawings having a multitude of breasts. This wasn't because they believed the goddess actually looked like this. Instead, the visible replica was intended to reflect their belief that she was the source of fertility for her worshipers and their animals. Moreover, the statues of gods were placed in various places. When they're found in a house, this indicated that the family was devoted to this particular god. When they're found in a palace, this indicated that the king ruled his territory on behalf of this particular god. Or, very often, the king claimed to be either the son of this particular god or some kind of incarnation of this particular god. In other words, the statue, the image of a god, communicated the recognized claim of the god to have some kind of authority over this place and these people. This is related to the practice of kings having statues built of themselves to be placed in various cities throughout their kingdom, reminding their citizens who ruled the land, like Nebuchadnezzar famously did in Daniel chapter 3. An image of a king, therefore, represented his royal claim over a particular territory and its inhabitants. The image of a king represents the presence of the king who can't physically be there all the time. And the image of a god, likewise, represents the presence of the god who was believed to reside in the heavenly realm. All of these ideas surely coalesce in what we should understand as the significance of the one true God making humanity as his image. Students of Scripture have developed a broad spectrum of beliefs about what this means for humankind, but they basically boil down to two broad categories, the ontological and the functional. In other words, being made in the image of God has something to do with either who humans are or what humans do. However, this ancient Near Eastern background suggests that both are probably in view. For our purposes this morning, we're going to consider the significance from three vantage points, all overlapping. Being created in the image of God, humanity was created to resemble God, reflect God, and represent God. And each of these three angles will be considered with three images. But before we unpack the broader picture, we need to tackle a few more preliminary details from the verses 26 and 27 of Genesis 1. First, you may have noticed that I have switched back and forth between saying humanity is created in the image of God and humanity is created as the image of God. Those two phrases don't quite mean the same thing, but I have come to believe that both are legitimate ways of expressing what the Bible means to communicate. The Hebrew prepositions can indicate a very close association while also seeking to maintain a bit of distance. Secondly, I am purposely avoiding the language of image-bearing or bearing the image. I believe that phrase has introduced further confusion into the discussion. It's true that the idea of bearing the image does appear in Scripture, but it is never used of the image of God. We'll look at the one verse where this language is used later and consider its importance for our discussion then. Third, 
I am also purposely avoiding the idea of the image being something that people have or that is in people or on people. Biblically, as we'll see, you'll never read of anyone having the image of God. You'll never read of God's image being in people. And the idea of God stamping His image on people is also not directly expressed in Scripture. All of these ways of speaking, in my opinion, have clouded and convoluted the biblical teaching here. And so we're going to seek to stick closely to the biblical wording, and I think we'll actually be able to gain some more clarity on this subject. As one writer expresses the point, the image of God is not something outside of man or inside of man. The image of God is man. Man in his totality is the living, visible replica of the one true God. Finally, while the words image and likeness convey different emphases, their overlap in meaning indicates that they should probably be understood together. So while a particular verse may only mention one, the other is likely to be understood. And so if I only use the phrase in his image or as his image, I mean to speak of his likeness as well. So without further ado, let's consider God's creation of humanity, male and female together, as his own image in his likeness. First, we'll see how this means that God created humanity to resemble him. And the image we'll see is that humanity resembles God, especially as his sons and daughters. If an image was a visible replica, then it was recognized as resembling the God in certain ways. In other words, the statue was built to depict certain characteristics of the God. For humanity, this is probably the significance of the added term likeness. God created humanity to be like Him in certain ways. The question theologians have wrestled with forever is what are the particular ways God has in mind here? In what ways is humanity created like God? In seeking a biblical answer to this question, we need to begin a few chapters later in Genesis. The first time the Scriptures look back on this moment of creation occurs in Genesis 5, introducing a genealogy. Consider Genesis 5, 1 and 2. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them, and named them man when they were created. Now notice that Moses adds something that we don't see explicitly stated in chapters 1 or 2. God named them, male and female together, with the title Adam, translated man with a capital M, or humanity, or humankind. Continue into verse 3. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. Catch the parallel here. God created humanity in his own likeness, and then he named them man. Adam fathered a son in his own likeness, and then he named, and after his image, and named him Seth. When we hold this passage together with Genesis 1, 26 and 27, we can see first that the likeness and image connection between Adam and Seth is reflecting a father-son connection. So it is is that the image and likeness connection between God and humanity is reflecting a father-son connection. This is why Luke is able to sketch out his genealogy of Jesus, taking it all the way back to Adam. And he reads Genesis to teach that Seth was the son of Adam, who was the son of God. Thus, the word likeness in Genesis 1.26 indicates a sonship likeness 
in particular. Now, this observation often prompts folks to start looking at various ways that children are like their parents and then find parallels in particular aspects of humanity that may be like God. However, the Bible never seems to do this with any specificity in connection with being created in the image and likeness of God. Theologians point to relationality, rationality, emotionality, speech, intelligence, morality, and particular attributes or qualities that God shares with humans. The problem with this procedure is that it inevitably results in certain individuals being somehow less in God's image than others. I need not speak of the atrocities human beings commit when they begin to believe that some people are not made in God's image as much as others. Now, if we consider Genesis 5, 1 to 3 a little more closely, we can notice how the status of God's image is maintained among humanity. As you'll recall, Genesis 5 comes after Genesis 3, which indicates that after Adam and Eve rebelled against God in Genesis 3, they were still His image. Genesis 5 doesn't say that explicitly, but Genesis 9-6 famously will. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. Here, capital punishment for bloodshed is grounded in the fact that humanity continues in God's image. Now, this doesn't quite say what it is often made to say. The word man in each case is not indicating an individual person. Thus, we should read it as saying, whoever sheds human blood by humanity shall his blood be shed, for God made humanity in his own image. This is giving the authority for capital punishment not to an individual avenger, but to a human society as a whole, because human society as a whole is God's image. Yes, this does, imply that the val- this does imply the value and dignity of the individual person who was killed, but that's not actually the point. But back to Genesis 5. Look again at verses 1 to 3. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. Verse 1 is setting up a genealogy, a line of parentage. And Moses chooses to remind us readers of God's creation of humanity in the likeness of God. Then in verse 2, he reminds us readers that he created humanity male and female. A very important fact for a genealogy to reflect reality. You've got to have male and female to make a line of children, right? Yes. Then in verse 3... He writes, Adam fathered a son in his own likeness after his image, bringing in the word image from chapter 1. I can't help but conclude that the way humanity continues to exist as God's image is by procreating. This is a helpful observation because it reminds us that being God's image or sharing in God's image, God's likeness, is a status conveyed to all humanity. This means that it is not something that appears to be lost after the rebellion of humanity. It is not something that diminishes after humanity is exiled from God's presence. Humanity continues to be a visible replica that represents God in the world. And this doesn't leave room for the possibility that some individuals might be more or less in God's image than others. And finally, I think it rather clearly implies that the moment a child is fathered, 
that is to say, conceived, that child becomes God's image. Thus, from the moment of conception, every human being on the planet continues to exist as God's image. And that status and that reality is not lost or changed as long as the person should live in this world. If that is true, then perhaps in considering how humanity resembles God as His sons and daughters, we shouldn't go further than the fundamental fact that all humans share from conception to death. Life. Unlike the images of pagan gods, Yahweh's image was alive. And while humanity cannot create life the way God did, humanity has the ability to procreate. Humanity can produce life in a special act between male and female. As God is a living life giver, so human beings work together, male and female specifically work together as living life givers. Now truly, this by itself doesn't set us apart from most animals. Animals are alive and animals procreate. Certainly being created in God's image and likeness does set humanity apart from the animals. That's clear from Genesis 1. The clue for the difference that God wants to draw our attention to in the text of Genesis 1 is what we've already considered this morning, the singular plural connection. None of God's other creative acts emphasized His plurality, but when He creates humanity, He says, let us make man in our image after our likeness, a threefold repetitive emphasis. Then to have humanity's own plurality emphasized by specifying sexual differentiation into male and female suggests that this was the important likeness that God wanted to highlight. Even though most animals likewise exist as male and female, their maleness and femaleness doesn't serve as reflecting God's personal plurality. So herein lies our justification for considering human personal capacity for relationship as an aspect of our created likeness to God. Allow me to defy common sense for just a moment. Ordinarily, we wouldn't think of a baby in the womb, especially moments after conception, as having any relational capacity. At some point during the process of baby development, I know mommies and daddies in some cases begin to experience various kinds of relational connections with the baby in the womb. Some of this is probably hormonal, but some of this seems to reflect genuine responsiveness. Now, some of that might be just physical stimuli. The baby kicks, and we interpret that as a response to something mommy was doing or eating at the moment. And of course, many parents enjoy speaking and singing to the baby through mommy's tummy. While none of us remember those moments from when we were in our mommy's tummy, who would like to reject the possibility that those were genuine relational connections? Beyond that, to get theological for a moment, Who's to say that God cannot establish a real relationship with a fetus? I have often taken encouragement from the biblical testimony about a fetus leaping for joy in response to his mother hearing a greeting from the woman in whose womb the Holy Spirit had recently caused the Messiah to be conceived. Now the mother, whose name was Elizabeth, could say that the baby in her tummy leaped for joy only because the Holy Spirit had filled her at that same moment, granting her a divine perspective on what she had just felt. I doubt 
any other woman on the planet has had such a divine perspective given to interpret the common movement of a baby. However, this pushes me outward to consider others who experience limits in their relational capacities. In a book entitled, You're Only Human, How Your Limits Reflect God's Design and Why That's Good News, theologian Kelly Capick has much to say about what biblically makes us human. I want you to listen carefully to this quote. He writes, Someone with an IQ that barely registers may nevertheless profoundly experience God's love, sensing His presence and responding to His kindness, even if that response is unrecognizable to the rest of us. Salvation and even communion should not be reduced to high intellectual ability. Those who cannot verbally communicate or who have other disabilities may nonetheless have deep communion with other people. We dare not look for evidence of God's image in abilities. Where there is human life, there is God's image. We should therefore celebrate life, protect life, preserve life, value life, and cultivate life. That is how We resemble God as His sons and daughters. That is how we resemble God as His image. Secondly, God's creation of humanity in His image and after His likeness indicates that we reflect God. And the image we can consider here is that of mirrors. Humanity is to be God's mirrors in this world. Now, don't think of using a mirror to see yourself. Instead, think of how you might look in a mirror at an angle to see something else. God created humanity to reflect Him to other people, to each other, and to the rest of the world. With this idea, we begin to shift from what humanity is to what humanity does. I believe this idea would have been apparent to Moses' original readers because the statue of a pagan god was intended to have this effect on the people who saw it. In other words, when ancient people looked at a statue of a god, they were supposed to recognize certain things from its appearance that taught them about the nature of their god. Since humanity is the living statue, the image of the one true god, what should be visible about our god in us? Well, we start with the obvious dissimilarity. Humans have physical bodies. The one true god didn't. Yes, that past tense is necessary. He didn't, but he does now. Humans have mouths and tongues, arms and hands, legs and feet, heads and bodies. Intriguingly, God is said to have a mouth and a tongue, arms and hands, legs and feet, and a head and a body in Scripture. Now, we recognize those as literary devices, often referred to as anthropomorphisms, but that's just the point. God has chosen to reveal Himself to us in terms of our own physical bodies. Human arms come to symbolize strength. Therefore, God's arm, particularly His right arm, signifies His strength. Human mouths refer to our ability to speak and to our actual words. Likewise, God's mouth refers to His speaking. Instead of thinking of these comparisons as anthropomorphisms, perhaps we would better speak as commentator Bruce Waltke does. He suggests... More accurately, a human being is theomorphic, made like God, 
so that God can communicate Himself to people. Also, we can reflect God in our personal relationships. This is to be fundamentally expressed in terms of love. Love for each other is to be a reflection of God the Father's love for God the Son. Jesus taught us this. In John 15, 9, we hear Him telling His 11 disciples, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. And then four sentences later, in verse 12, we read, Love one another as I have loved you. Later that night, the disciples got to hear Jesus praying to His Father, and He spoke of this love and the way He desired it to be reflected in His disciples. In John 17, 23, Jesus spoke of the Father's dwelling in Him and His dwelling in His disciples with the expected outcome that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. And then in verse 26, Jesus commits to continue revealing the Father to them with the expected outcome that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. In other words, God intends that the love shared between the eternal Father and the eternal Son be reflected in Jesus' human disciples. This also fits as one reason why Jesus was able to summarize the obligations of the Mosaic Law in the greatest commandment, summarized in two parts, effectively as love God, love neighbor, a singular great commandment that has a certain plurality to it. When we return to Genesis 1, we don't see any particular ways humanity reflects God. However, when we move into chapter 2, we will. We see God as the sole actor in chapter 1. But in chapter 2, the man becomes active. And he does things that God did in chapter 1. For example, in Genesis 2.20, the man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. In chapter 1, God had named various aspects of creation, leaving the animals for Adam to name. This reflects God's creative ability to assess, categorize, and make distinctions. Then in verse 23, the man speaks. Up to this point, we have only read God's words. In the man's first words, a wondrous poem in awe of his newly created bride, he recognizes her as the helper God had fit for him, a proper assessment of her goodness, the same way God saw that everything he had made was good. And what's the point in these reflections? We could press on in Scripture and find commands that instruct humanity to behave and speak like God in various ways. But what is the ultimate aim of that reflection? What is the mirror to reflect? The objective, as we mentioned last week, is well expressed by the prophet Habakkuk. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. People who know the glory of Yahweh are responsible to communicate that glory to the rest of the world. This is really an all-encompassing responsibility. Indeed, Paul expresses it most comprehensively in 1 Corinthians 10.31. So, whether you eat or whether you drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Thus, every action humanity should take both corporately and individually, should seek to point in some way to God's glory. God created humanity, male and female together, as a plurality of mirrors to reflect different angles of His glory. 
as though God were standing in the center of one of those rooms where the walls are lined with mirrors all around. Humanity was designed to reflect God's glory in word and deed. Departing from the metaphor of mirrors, let me quote Jason DeRucci's explanation to close this point. Whereas all other living creatures were created according to their kinds, humanity alone was created in God's image after his likeness. The significance of an image is not found in itself, but in that to which the image points, like a telescope, which takes something large and shows its glories in a clearer way. So too, humans are called to display God's greatness and worth for all the world to see. This is the purpose of the commission in Genesis 1.28. The call to fill and subdue the earth is a call to spread God's image over the globe, to be pointers in word and deed to the greatness of God and to spread a passion for His renown. Well said. That leads us to our third and what should be considered the most important aspect of God's creation of humanity as His image. We are to represent God as rulers of the rest of creation. This is the primary point Moses' original readers would have thought of, and this indicates that humanity has a God-designed royal status. The term vice-regents is often used. As we mentioned last week, God's words in Genesis 1.26 could be well translated, let us make man in our image after our likeness so that they may have dominion. Thus, the fact that humanity resembles God and reflects God is what equips humanity to rule on God's behalf and in God's way. As was mentioned earlier, this is a status that is conferred on all humanity. Thus, every human being at conception should be viewed as having royal dignity. That is why the death penalty is instituted for those who kill human beings in Genesis 9-6. It's not just babies in the womb we're killing. It's royal babies. It's not just aged and decrepit old people we're euthanizing. It's royal seniors. As one writer says, one crucial result of humanity created in the image of God is the value assigned to humanity. And value is a prime determiner of identity. You are valuable Because God says so, no matter what else. God, by grace, gives us value for all of life. And this valuing becomes the lens by which we view other people as well. The image of God is about the dignity and value of all people. God has placed His image on this planet, staking out His claim on this planet, and He has placed His living image on this planet to actually exercise His rule over the rest of creation. Thus, the commission that flows out of the royal status goes beyond the command for animals to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That function humanity has in common with animals. But the added commands for humanity to subdue the earth and to exercise dominion over every living thing that moves on the earth delegate ruling authority to humanity to be God's representative ruler on this planet over everything else. As that is the case, humanity must be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. As one writer puts it simply, humans need to be everywhere in order to represent God everywhere. The reality that God created humanity as his royal vice-regents is related to the sonship aspect we discussed earlier. As Professor Peter Gentry notes, in Egyptian thinking, the king 
is the image of God because he is the son of God. And we can see that linkage continued in Scripture as the Davidic kings were spoken of as sons of God, as corporate son of God, as royal vice-regent of God. Humanity's responsibility before God is grounded in his created identity. As the psalmist reflects in Psalm 115, 16, the earth Yahweh has given to the children of man, given as a stewardship to be cared for and cultivated. As Professor John Walton writes, this world is not ours to dispose of as we will, but it has been put under our charge to manage for its owner, God. That management is not with our own benefit in mind, but with the mindset that this is God's world. In Genesis 2, we will zoom in on a priestly aspect to humanity's identity and role in God's created world so that ultimately we can recognize humanity as a royal priesthood. But we'll leave that discussion for later. For now, we need to press on and consider the biblical need for a new image. As we all know, Genesis 3 is just out in front of us, and we might wonder, how has sin, how has human rebellion against God affected our status as God's image? We've already pointed to the biblical fact that Genesis 5 and Genesis 9 both indicate humanity's continuing with this identity after the fall. As we consider the biblical need for a new image, let's briefly consider how human rebellion has impacted the three different angles on being made in God's image that we've considered this morning. We might consider resembling God, reflecting God, and ruling for God as three expressions of our identity as God's image. In light of that way of framing it, a pastor named Jonathan Threlfall writes, while fallen humans remain in the image of God, Something about the expression of their imagedness is flawed. I like his word, imagedness. Pastor Threlfall suggests that after Genesis 3, humanity lives with an ongoing tension between imagedness and sinfulness. He writes, Human sin stands in direct opposition to imagedness, but does not nullify it. Therefore, instead of saying that sin nullifies or damages imagedness, it is better to say that sin perverts expressions of imagedness. So how does that look? If human likeness to God is to resemble him as his living sons, then human rebellion has introduced death into human experience. Death and dying don't resemble God. Humans now come into this world as spiritually stillborn sons so that we all need new life. Or as Kelly Capick puts it in You're Only Human, sin has turned royal daughters and sons of the Creator Lord into thieves and prisoners, beggars and bastards. Rather than delighting in others, we treat them like instruments for our self-serving impulses. Thus, in our personal relationships, sin certainly distorts our relationships with each other so that we all need reconciliation. We all need life, and we all need reconciliation. If humanity is to reflect God to each other and to the rest of the world as mirrors, sin has cracked the mirrors. Oh, the reflection is still there. Humans can still love, for example, but human love pales in comparison to God's love. And humans frequently hate instead of love. Humans can still communicate, but we often use our words to harm, to deceive, and to speak poorly or falsely of God. To quote Pastor Threlfall once more as he reflects on Romans 1, we we remain beings related to something above us, 
but now we deceive ourselves about what is above us. Because of imagedness, our perception of God cannot be eradicated. What can be known about God is plain to them, Romans 1.19. Yet because of sinfulness, that perception is perverted. They have exchanged the truth about God for a lie, Romans 1.25. As image bearers, we form beliefs about God and ourselves, but as sinners, these beliefs are guaranteed to be false. With regard to our serving as God's royal representatives, ruling the world on His behalf, I'm sure I don't need to mention all the ways humans sinfully distort the exercise of authority. But in Genesis 3, we will see this issue on full display. Moses' account of humanity's initial rebellion against God emphasizes the failure of humanity in the garden to rule properly on God's behalf. We are now merely royal pretenders so that human rule consistently represents the wrong ruler. But to see the Scriptures actually pointing to the specific need for a new image, we should consider a passage that has often been recognized as a commentary within Scripture on Genesis 1, 26-28. That passage is Psalm 8. While David doesn't use the words image or likeness, he certainly elaborates on the concept, particularly from the vantage point of representative rule. But we're going to consider the key verses from Psalm 8 as they are quoted and expounded by the author of Hebrews. So turn in your Bible, if you will, to Hebrews 2.5. The verses we're looking at will be on the screen as well. Starting in Hebrews 2.5. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified, What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet, at present, we do not see everything subject to him. Now stop there for a moment. The first major section of the book of Hebrews highlights how Jesus is better than angels. One question the author seeks to address is, who will rule the world to come? Who will rule the new creation? And on what basis? He indicates angels won't rule the new creation. He quotes from Psalm 8 then in a very interesting manner. The verses he quotes have David marveling over the exalted position God granted humanity in creation. He poetically speaks of humanity's being crowned with glory and honor. And he indicates that humanity was made a little lower than the angels. Recognizing that angels are heavenly beings, this would mean that humanity is depicted as the highest of non-heavenly beings, the highest ranking earthly creatures. Then David elaborates on this by indicating that God put everything under humanity's feet, a statement that reflects God's commission for humanity to subdue the earth. The author of Hebrews begins expounding the text in a particular direction, zooming in on this detail. Emphatically, he observes that Psalm 8 implies that God left nothing that is not subject to humanity. Thus, humanity's rule over creation was intended to be universal. But then the author of Hebrews makes an important practical observation. In his day, and we could add in our day today, at present, we do not see everything subject to him. Why not? Genesis 3. The author of Hebrews is not concerned to address that question, however. His purpose for opening up Psalm 8 is different. Humanity's rule over the world on God's behalf has not gone well. So when we look around, 
we see the sinfulness and failure and brokenness of humanity and of creation. We don't see humanity ruling for God. We don't see God's image reflected across the world. Well, what do we see? He could have answered this question by focusing on the sin and brokenness that remains, but he doesn't because he's a Christian preacher. Instead, he points to Jesus. So in verse 9 we read, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor. Now stop there for just a moment. Let me make two important observations, one obvious and one easy to overlook. First, the easy to overlook observation. This is the first use of the personal name Jesus in the book of Hebrews. He's been referred to by several titles, most emphatically the Son, but the author has dramatically delayed referring to his personal name until this moment in chapter 2. Second, the obvious observation, the author is applying phrases from Psalm 8 to Jesus. Whereas David in Psalm 8 was reflecting on humanity being made a little lower than the angels in the beginning, the author of Hebrews points to Jesus being made a little lower than the angels in his incarnation. What for humanity in the beginning was an elevated status, for Jesus in his incarnation was a kind of humbling. Also, while David was reflecting on humanity's originally being crowned with glory and honor, the author of Hebrews points to Jesus being now crowned with glory and honor. Thus, humanity's creation as God's royal image has not resulted in humanity actually ruling the world on God's behalf. We know And I assume the author of Hebrews' original audience would have known that the reason for this current state of affairs is because of the rebellion of the royal vice-regents themselves, as recorded in Genesis 3. So, a new ruling image was needed, and Jesus is that new ruling image. He is now crowned with glory and honor. But we need to finish the verse to learn how and why Jesus received this crown. Because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Jesus became truly human, taking on humanity's status just below the angels, so that he could experience death on behalf of humanity as an expression of God's grace towards his rebellious image. There might have been a thought that since humans failed to rule the original creation, then perhaps the new creation would be ruled by angels instead. God's plan was always that humanity would rule the earth. Well, the new creation has begun, but we still don't see humanity in general actually ruling on God's behalf. But we do see the man, Jesus, having been exalted. He is the representative of humanity who now rules the world on behalf of God and on behalf of man. And as we'll see, he will restore the rule and all other implications of our imagedness to all those who trust in Him. That God would send His Son to taste death for everyone surely highlights the dignity and value of God's image in the world, tainted by sin though it is. The New Testament, therefore, repeatedly speaks of Jesus as God's image. Unlike the passages in Genesis, we don't have a preposition problem to consider here. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, Christ simply is the image of God. Likewise, in Colossians 1.15, God's beloved Son is the image of the invisible God. 
Several other passages explain this same reality using other language. But Jesus himself probably gives us the best explanation of what this means repeatedly in John's gospel. In John 5.19, he explains his deeds, which the Jewish leaders were criticizing and condemning, by saying, for whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. In other words, Jesus reflects the Father in his deeds. In John 10.30, he goes further, saying, I and the Father are one. Jesus and the Father are so united that he is a true mirror of God. He is the true Son of God who perfectly and completely resembles His Father, so much so that He can say to His disciples in John 14, 9, whoever has seen Me has seen the Father. Jesus is uniquely qualified to function as God's image as a human. John explains in his prologue to his gospel account in John 1, 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then skipping down to verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. As Jesus is the image of God, He's also the rightful ruler of this world. Paul's poetic worship of Jesus in Philippians 2 captures the reality that Jesus rules as God and as man, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, by being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Thus it is through Jesus that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. So as we conclude, we can consider how the church and Christians now become Jesus's image. Humanity as a whole and every individual conceived throughout history remains God's image, but our imageness is tainted by sinfulness. Therefore, redemption offers us a new status that brings genuine change to our imagedness, mitigates the problems of our sinfulness and our brokenness, and finally promises the ultimate solution to every problem human rebellion introduced to this world and to human experience. We glanced at Colossians 3.10 last week, where we see that we believers have put on the new man, who is being renewed to a full knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. How did we put on the new man? Well, for our part, we trusted in Jesus. We were united to Christ, who is the image of God, by faith. But Ephesians 2.15 says that when Jesus died on the cross, he created in himself one new man. So, we have put on the new man by being joined to the one new man the new humanity Jesus created by His victorious and redemptive death on the cross. But Paul also speaks of the process of growth, the process of transformation in terms of the image of Jesus. Thus, we begin to see an already but not yet reality in this aspect of our salvation. We see Jesus, but we don't yet see ourselves reflecting Jesus completely. 
In 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul extends a discussion of this point all the way through chapter 5. Here are some of the critical movements in his argument. In 3.18, he writes, And we all are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And what glory is he talking about? 2 Corinthians 4.4 defines it as the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And what will this transformation actually look like? How does it happen? 2 Corinthians 4.14 indicates that it happens as we are knowing that He who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into His presence. Thus we press on in growth and change as we believe that He will do what He says He will do. Even as our experience is like Paul describes in verses 16 and 17, though our outer man is wasting away, our inner man is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. In other words, as Peter challenges us in 1 Peter 2.21, we follow in the suffering steps of Jesus. Or as John says in 1 John 2.6, we ought to walk in the same way in which He walked. Thus, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.7, we walk by faith, not by sight. Likewise, Paul often has the final destination of our final conformity to the image of Jesus in view. He keeps repeating these promises to us so that we might be strengthened in our faith. Thus, in Philippians 3.21, he promises that Jesus will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body. We're talking about resurrection here. And this is grounded in Paul's earlier guarantee in Philippians 1.6. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Likewise, in 1 Corinthians 15.49, he writes, Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. In the resurrection, we will bear the image of Jesus, the one Paul earlier describes as the last Adam and here describes as the man of heaven, or the heavenly man. Wonder of wonders, this was the plan all along. Before God created man in His own image, before the foundation of the earth, Paul tells us in Ephesians 1.5 that God predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ. And he elaborates on this in Romans 8, 29, where he clarifies that he had predestined those whom he foreknew to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Predestination is all about the exaltation of Jesus. Don't fight about it. Don't fuss about it. Worship. Rebellious humanity continues to be the visible replica and representation of God. But rebellious humanity outside of Christ is an inaccurate replica and misrepresents God. To function as God intended, to have the mirror repaired, all people must turn away from their rebellion and turn to Christ, the true image of God, for forgiveness and cleansing. When we do, the Holy Spirit begins the work of transformation that enables Christians to truly though incompletely for now, resemble Jesus, reflect Jesus, and rule alongside Jesus. We can love as He loved. 
sacrificing ourselves for the people around us, considering others more important than ourselves. We can proclaim the truth of the gospel, and we can testify of the reasons for our hope in the midst of our ongoing suffering. And we can exercise authority in service with gentleness and for the good of others. Would you pray with me toward that end? Father, is it a great gift that you have taught us who we are as human beings, fundamentally. But we also rejoice in the great revelation that you've given to us that explains who we are in Christ. We understand by faith, based on what you have told us in your word, how broken the world is. But we can draw that conclusion just from looking around or indeed looking in our own mirrors. And so we thank you that you have supplied a lasting, permanent, eternal remedy for all that ails us. We pray that you would stir in us this perspective that looks around at the people in our world and sees them as valuable and having dignity because you have made them in your image. Though they may be cracked and flawed as much as we are, help us to see beyond the brokenness and remember the value that you have placed upon us not only by creating us in the first place in this way, but also by sending your Son to die for us. Oh, Father, what great dignity humanity has. Help us to view our enemies that way, the people who frustrate us, the people who in our weakest, sinfulest moments we wish were dead, or we wish would be hurt or punished. Would you turn us away from such thoughts and help us to well up with your compassion and your love. Help us to lead with compassion before we move for justice and vengeance, like our Savior did. So thank you for these words that teach us who we are, who humanity is, and help us, by your Spirit, to greater embody, to more clearly embody the image of our Savior, the image of your Son, We thank you that we have a guarantee that someday we will look like him. Someday the resemblance will be easier for us to see even. And we long for that day. We long for the brokenness to be fixed. We long for the sin that clings so closely to be eradicated and eliminated. We thank you for the forgiveness that's been granted that we don't have to be weighed down by guilt. Help us to live out of that, to live out of the new identity you've given us. Help us to remember as your people that we represent you in this world, that we represent Jesus in this world. And we pray that you would stir us up to boldness to represent him faithfully with our words and our deeds. Thank you that we can do that together. Being made in the image of God is not merely an individual thing. It's something that we do together, that we live out together. So help us to encourage each other toward that growth and toward that conformity. And help us to correct each other when we look like the old man. So thank you for the grace that you provide through your spirit for all of this. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.